Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. It's, it's good to see you. Uh, we're going to jump right into uh, reading the, the text this week, uh, and, and we'll kind of move on from there. So we are in 1 John. We're going to read 1 John 3, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that, we, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes uh, his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is uh, the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray again. Uh, Father, we pray that you just be with us. Uh, we need you. Technical difficulties and spring break and Palm Sunday and Easter coming and just so many things flood our minds. So we pray that you would draw near. Holy Spirit, we need you. Would you let us see the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of who we are uh, in you. Father, we pray that you are glorified and made much of. pray that in your name. Amen. All right, so... If you remember uh, so far, John is a book, uh, really, First John is written to kind of a, a network of house churches, most likely, and they're experiencing at the moment that the letter gets to them a, a pretty chaotic moment in their history, even the ch- though the church had not uh, existed very long and Jesus hadn't uh, gone away uh, very far in the past. They were already early, early in their history experiencing just a lot of opposition from the world around them, but then also the the hardship that they were dealing with is they're also experiencing quite a lot of opposition uh, from within the church, like their own people, their own body. What was beginning to happen is that people inside their own church uh, were starting to believe that there was new knowledge, new truth, new gospel, new uh, revelation available to them, and they were going to live out this new thing, even though it wasn't even really that long ago that Jesus was on the scene. They're already ready to go another uh, direction. Now, think about what that means. They're not old. They don't have this long heritage. They don't have this long ability to, to, to draw from the past where they've kind of been holding uh, the line. But already very early in their history, there's this pressure to start changing course that has arrived on their, their doorstep. Ch- pressure to change what the church held as true. Pressure to change what the church believed. And this pressure, it, it wasn't benign. Uh, it started causing people to, to walk o- away. So like even this morning, look around at the people uh, around you and, and imagine that some, somebody near you that you care about and you've walked with for a while, uh, next week or, or never after that, they're just never going to come back. That's what they were going through. Brothers and sisters, people that they'd walked in community with for a period of time were walking away, abandoning the church and just painfully leaving uh, the, the community, and this is exactly what was happening to them, an ex- exodus of the church. 
There was chaotic, painful uncertainty that marked their time. And that's why John writes to them in the way that he does in 1 John. John's approach uh, in writing to them in the middle of difficulty was was pretty basic, meaning he wasn't trying to uh, be overly complex or overly wordy or show his wisdom. What John wanted to do in this text was synthesize things down to the main things and the foundational core principles of the faith that the church must hold on to. And I think we can probably understand why he did that. Imagine you were in a chaotic, painful situation. Tense, uncertain, your, your family and friends are, are walking away. You've been uh, rocked yourself. Maybe you're considering walking away from the faith yourself. Questions are many, answers are few. And in that moment of pain and suffering and uncertainty and anxiety, you just really need some assurance. You really need to feel like you're not crazy. You need just some, some help there. Now imagine in that point of chaotic pain, a leader walks up and he hands you a 900-page systematic theology book. Here, the answer for all your worries are inside. Dig in. You're welcome. Right? Inside the book, there is Levitical law, creation, new heavens, new earth, demons, circumcision, all of this, all of the answers are in there, and, and he hands it to you. Here, prayers. Right, that wouldn't be super helpful to have that volume of information at that point of chaos. And there'd be a decent chance if you're like me and you get that much volume in the middle of pain that you really want to airmail it back at their head. Right? It's not, because it's not very helpful. And, and that's because in chaos, the enemy will always move towards you with doubt. Always. You'll always try and make unclear what is clear. So tons of information isn't always what we need in chaos. Have you been in a situation before where where pain comes your way and you just become disoriented by what happens around you? I know that I have. Where you literally feel confused and things that you once knew, you're going, "I, I don't know because of the chaos. When tension comes, the enemy will use that to walk near and try and bring doubt into your mind. Just like the tree in the Garden of Eden, the enemy will move towards you and go, did God really say? Is that really what truth is? Is that really how you want to live? Is that really how he's called you to live? He'll, He'll call you to question who you are, what you believe, your identity, your faith, which is the foundational elements of what you walk in. And when that kind of tension comes and that chaos comes and the enemy moves towards you with doubt, you and I need a reminder of the basics. We do not need fourth, fifth, sixth-tier theological elements to get wiser about. We need to remember what is the foundational elements of our faith so that we can walk on. That's why John writes the book the way that he does. He's focusing on the foundation, focusing on the, the main things, the core that cannot be forgotten. And that's why he'll jump back and forth really between three things. Truth, which is doctrine, obedience, this is how you're called to live, and love especially how we love each other. He'll keep circling around these elements over and over and over. As Pastor DeMarcus said last week, he amplifies them, meaning he magnifies the level of importance that they have every single time that he kind of deals with them. So here's kind of the challenge for us. We're, we're in chapter three. We've been through this for a while. So those, those kind of basic core things, he's already going to start hitting them for a second time, meaning we're going to have heard the things in this text before already. And as my DNA group uh, us guys kind of already realize we're going to have to kind of challenge ourselves uh, for when we hear the same thing to not shut down. 
We can't say, okay, well, this is a love people text. We've already done that before. Got it. I, I, I'm good. Since I've, I, I've heard it before, I'm done with it. What we need to be wise about is not think of this as, oh, it's the same thing. We need to hear it as, oh, it's the main thing. And we need to wrestle with it and we need to dive into it. Our gauge of value has to shift from have I heard this to, to do I have this? Do I understand it? Do, do I walk in it? Is it something that's coming out of my life because it is who I am? So yes, brothers and sisters, there's going to be repetition. We've already been through love each other texts, but there's new fresh value here. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and I think it's helpful as we walk through the next couple of weeks. It cannot be said too frequently that the New Testament never asks us to do anything without first of all reminding us of who we are. It does so because its doctrine is that we cannot do the things that we are asked to do unless we are the children of God. So it bears worth reminding us as we circle back to these core elements of the faith once again, another time we're going to hear them, that John isn't as much saying, hey, you better shape up and you better get better at this and you should do all of this and you should improve this. Instead, he is saying, this is who you are in Jesus. Now remember who you are. Not get better at this. It's this is who you are. Walk out your identity. In John, 1 John 3, 1, the text that was last week, John said, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and, and, and so we are. That is a text of awe. Guys, see the love that we've got. God just literally said it, and, and now it's true. Can you wrap your mind around it? We are called children of God, and so we are without us doing anything. We did not buy our position in. We didn't earn our position in. We weren't born in a certain family line that made him want us. Instead, God the Father spoke, called us his, and made us his. He claimed us, and now we're loved. The driving force in living out truth, in living out obedience, in living out a life of love is not duty. The driving force is identity. This is who you are. Please don't forget who you are. Think of it this way. It's not that you have to be those that walk in truth better. It's that you've been given the truth and you're no longer a, a, a hostage to darkness. It's not that you have to obey or else you'll lose shiny things in your life. It's that you're now set free from slavery under sin and now the grip of sin over you is broken and you don't have to live that way anymore. You're free to obey. And it's not that we have to, to, to just love our siblings and each other better. It's that Jesus broke down the hostility between us and him and the Father and then even broke down the, hospi- the, the hostility between us as family members. And now we're no longer individuals who mean nothing to each other and operate like the world is. We're brothers and sisters loved who get to love each other. It's not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be a blessing. As the community deals with the heaviness of a hard time in their history, very early in their history, John says in the text, guys, this is the message from the very beginning. The message has not and it will not change, and it is that we should love one another. This is the core that we have to remember as well. We are in a world, in a culture that tells us all the time, and the enemy tells us all the time, are you really going to live that way? All of these years and all of these minds contemplating all these things, don't we know better? Aren't we more modern? Aren't we more wise? Aren't we more all of these things? Doesn't it have to change? No, some of the things, they will never change. One of the things that will never change is our call to love each other, brothers and sisters in the faith. 
Again, the logic isn't you better get better at loving each other or else. John is saying we've been brought together into a family, and as a family, we should love one another because that's who we are now. Now watch the shift as John picks up from the time before, right? He's already told us that we should love each other, the brothers and the sisters, but now he'll, he'll shift. And what he's going to do is he's going to take that love out of an ethereal, vague sense, and he's going to turn love into an action and a verb. That's extremely important because when we tend to think of things that we love, we get a little weird and a little vague and a little bit out there, assuming that because we feel some sort of fondness in our heart towards something that we love it. John's going, no, no, the way that you feel in the depths of your heart doesn't have to do with love. Love is something that you act out towards the thing that you love. If we love one another, that love cannot be hidden. It will be shown. It will be expressed. Real love always gets expressed. And then here's the other side of that coin. A lack of love in our hearts will get expressed as well. It cannot be hidden. It will come out and fly out in expression, whether it's passive aggression or, or bitterness or cold shoulders or anything like that. Our lack of love will be shown. Whichever is in our heart will be the fruit on our tree. Visible, tangible, full of power to either build up and live as family or destroy the people that we're meant to walk with. We cannot hide from love or a lack of love. It will be in us and it will come out of us. John wants to clarify that. Now check out the drive. Love one another, and then he says we should not be like Cain. Right, drawing back to, to the very beginning, this is John giving us clear sight into how we change when we are in God and how our love changes when we are in God. He says Cain was of the evil one. Right? He wasn't in the light. He, he was not uh, walking in the light of who God is at the moment. So he was stuck in his sin and Cain killed his brother. Right, we let that pass. His own brother, the one that he is meant to love, the one, his brother, he killed him. John asks, okay, well, why did he kill him? Right, the, un, the other thing, like, did, did he have a good motive? Well, why did he kill his own brother? Well, he killed his own brother because his deeds were evil. He didn't kill his brother because his brother was evil. He killed his brother because his own deeds were evil. And his brother was righteous. This example of Cain and Abel is a kind of window into humanity because we can look at that and be like, oh, man, that was bad. What we have to understand is, oh man, that's how the world loves or how we are prone to love if we're not careful. In our fallen state and outside of God's love, we will always love in a very, very specific way. And here it is. We will love based upon what other people do for us or how they make us feel about ourselves. This is how the world, not the family of God, this is how the world loves This is how we're prone to love if we're not careful. We will love other people based on what they do or how they make us feel. What does that look like? If you love me, I'll love you. Right? You give me love, I'll give it back. If you're indifferent to me, I'll be indifferent to you. And if you hate me, just going to give it back. I'm going to hate you. And what we have to understand, this is, not, this is not love. What this is, is this is emotional reciprocity. I'll give you back what you already give me. Even, even tradesies. You give me something first, and I'll give you back. Nothing more, nothing less. That's what's fair. You give me good stuff, I'll give you good stuff. You don't, I won't give you anything. This is the world's version. 
The other way that this reciprocity works itself out is love based upon how you make me feel about myself. If you make me feel good about myself, high five, I love you. If you don't, if you do not build me up, if you, don't, if you don't like me or help me in the way that I think that you should when I'm suffering, if you don't do this and this and this, then I will not love you. I'll reject you, I'll ignore you, I'll resent you, and I'll lash out against you. This is the way that things went down with Cain and Abel. See, there's no indication that Abel was a bad brother. Right? There, there's no indication that he did anything wrong to Cain. We see that Abel feared the Lord and made sacrifices out of his allegiance to God. Basically, Abel was just worshiping God. That's all. That's all. And this means that, that God was one that Abel planned his life around. He intentionally worshiped, and, and, and his life was lived through the, the lens of who God is and what that meant. Just saying Abel was intentional. And he offered God worship out of his intentionality. And my sermon notes are gone. That's a first. Always have a backup, right? Hopefully. Wing it. That's what I have nightmares over. There we go. Always have two copies open. Uh Lord, help me. Um, Abel was just intentionally worshiping God, and what happened here is this. So <laughs> we were joking about this the other night. My youngest is named Abel, uh, and then Judah's the oldest. And right now, what happens quite often in our home is Abel will walk by his brother and punch him right in the parts and just keep walking. All the time. Like you're brushing your teeth, bam. Like you're getting ready to go eat dinner, bam. Like all the time. And, and so what's kind of happened through that is Judah will tag him back. Right? And I'm like, hey, Abel, you did that. You deserve that. Well, Abel's doing nothing wrong in this. Right? He, he hadn't been, in the, in the text, he isn't doing anything mean to his brother Cain. It inadvertently, his worship to God inadvertently highlighted the lack of worship and service that Cain had for God. You follow me? He did nothing to his brother, but his worship of God did something in his brother. Abel's love for God changed Cain's, uh, it challenged his indifference towards God. And, and when Cain felt this, uh, th- this challenge, what did he do? He lashed out in violence. Notice the depth of what John is showing us about what we are prone to walk into in our fallen state. Cain's attitude would have been, okay, my, my brother made me do this. Right? He tried to show me up. He tried to make me look bad. He tried to be all holy and all perfect and all this other stuff. He did this. He made me feel bad. He challenged my way of life. How dare he? I punished him because he deserved it. The rationale is the righteous person somehow deserves persecution, even though they did nothing wrong to the persecutor. John says, no, no, no. here's the case. Cain didn't murder his brother because his brother somehow did something wrong to him. He murdered his brother because he couldn't handle the way his brother's righteousness made him feel. He couldn't take it. He couldn't stand it. Cain's complete lack of righteousness and his own personal sin, when when that became clear through Abel's worship, Cain wanted to suppress the truth. 
to, to get it to go away. He wanted to stay in the darkness, and he wanted to stay in what he was doing, and he would go so far as to murder to keep it that way. Don't challenge me. Don't challenge my ways. Don't make me see that. Don't make me walk in that. How dare you do that? You might hear this and think, man, Cain was jacked up, like seriously messed up, but have you and I not had that same darkness on the corners of our heart? Maybe we just don't kill people with it. Right? Have you ever gotten bitter towards a brother or sister when all of a sudden that like just something's happening in their heart and there's joy and other things? You're like, ugh. Have you had that? Have you ever gotten kind of all judgy and mean when someone just starts walking out the commands of God well? Have you ever lashed out when a person doesn't even mean to, but something happens and your sin is highlighted and in love, they try and walk you through it and then you just get angry with them? This is the heart of Cain trying to walk its way back into your heart. This is the old identity trying to come back and overthrow the new one. John is reminding us that it shouldn't be that way. This isn't us. This isn't who you are now. You do not love that way. John then speaks into something that we have to hear with fresh ears this morning. This is the part of the text that that probably gripped me the most this week. The hope for us, church, walking out of the other side of the pandemic is that we'll hear this and we'll wrestle with this much better. If we ever want to see true mission, we have to hear what he says next. and We have to take it deeply into our hearts and wrestle with it. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Let that, the encouragement of that sink in. It's Palm Sunday. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when they hate you. Do not be caught off guard. Do not be floored. Do not be rocked to your core when they hate you. Make sure we're keeping the train of thought going in the right direction throughout this. Cain killed his brother because his brother's worship challenged his life. So as you and I go out and we live out our worship and our obedient life to God like Abel, do not be surprised when the world hates you like Cain hated his brother. That's what John's saying. John is speaking into a foundational element in the battle between light and dark that we really would like to get out from underneath. How can I be smart enough to make that not apply? How can I be relevant enough? How can I be kind enough to to, to not end up in that spot. We've been trying to do this for so long, and it's just not possible. See, darkness, sin, and evil do not want to be brought into the purity of light. Evil will lash out when it is challenged by holiness and godliness. So John is just saying, brothers and sisters, just walking out regular Tuesday morning Christianity run-of-the-mill obedience. I don't don't want to make obedience sound run-of-the-mill, but just you're not being Mother Teresa or some far example. He's trying to tell us just regular biblical obedience, regular truth, regular love, just being or son or daughter of God, walking in the light of God. That will, whether we want it to or not, it will illuminate the world's sin And it will illuminate the world's rejection of God. And some of the world will hate you for it. Just being faithful. 
Not being rude, not picketing, not saying horrific things to people, not being a jerk online and getting called out for it, just being faithful. Some will hate you for it. Again, John is not saying, hey, be offensive so the world will hate you for it. He's saying when you walk out your faith, just real truth, real obedience, real love, it will offend the world around you. So do not be surprised by that reality because light and dark look different. They're going to see it and it's going to cause issues. What I think we'll find is that we are not only surprised if the world hates us, though, We're utterly terrified of it and crushed if it ever happens. Like we are torn down to the foundation. And because of that, I would think that we could all just say, yeah, this is probably true. What what have we begun doing? We begin to learn to live in a way that doesn't bring that. The Bible would say that this is putting your light underneath a basket. We begin holding back our words and our witness, and our worship, and, and our, our, our prayer. In hopes of keeping the waters calm and keeping ourselves from being hated. What does this look like in real life? Well, it looks like beginning to have a life that, that is kind of uh, separated into different environments. It is the classical, what is called the the sacred and secular divide. It looks like the people of God living in a certain type of intentionality, in, in, in purity of action and boldness in what is called sacred spaces. So in church here, amen, we'll worship, we'll sing, we'll, we'll, we'll nod, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get after it. At missional community, we'll talk about the gospel and we'll wrestle with our sin, coffee with another believer. We'll, we'll kind of be honest about God. Behind closed doors, we'll live out our faith in just kind of this unafraid way. But then in secular spaces, at work and in the, the neighborhood or where you do your, your hobby, we, we, we won't have that same intentionality. It's not like in the church we're all holy and then we're constantly hammered out in the world. It's in the, in the church we live this way and then when we're in the world, we're just kind of, get in, just don't rock the boat, don't get the machine angry. What does that look like? It begins to be the light of the world turning down the lumens so that it doesn't offend the darkness. Style back a little bit. Just chill. Dial back the faith stuff. This pressure to run from being hated is, is one that we have to learn to fight if we ever want to see the mission of God move forward. Just practically, how will we be ambassadors of Christ? Because that's not just my job. We, as the followers of God, are meant to be ambassadors, which go and tell the world what he's like. How will we be ambassadors who show this beautiful, better thing that is Jesus to the world? How will we see mission explode? How will we see people saved? How will we see people brought from darkness into light, into the marvelous light of Jesus, if we're too afraid to show them a pure picture of Christ? How will they come to know if we're never honest about what Jesus has done in us, done for us, done to us? Church, we have to look not to try and be hated, but man, we got to pray for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us so we're not so terrified of it. This can show up in just different little ways. What would it be like not to be scared to just have someone at work go through something, go, can I pray for you? 
instead of going like, I, I read the room and I didn't think it was a good time. Like I was gonna, I was gonna say something Jesus-y, but then like Fred walked in and he like, he really hates me. Right? We begin to just navigate this way. and we, we just kind of flow through kind of, have you ever gone out of a football stadium after a huge game? And what do you do? You just turn into just get out without too much damage mode. I think, that, I think that's what we do in faith. Just, just don't get them too angry. And then we get together and we're bold and we get out with other people and we're terrified and how will they ever come to know? I speak of my own heart in that. Hear the text in light of this. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In our day, maybe that would read, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are terrified. They're too scared to see new life, too worried to be different to see revival, too fearful of rejection to show the world the only God that they actually need. My hope is that not not that we just go become aggressive, but that we just pray for faith. Holy Spirit, tell me how to walk. And my stomach is going to turn, and I'm going to get scared, and I'm going to get hot, and I'm going to get worried in my stomach. When it happens, just help me one step at a time. Help me to follow you without being so scared. One person at a time, one step at a time. How many might see Christ if we do that? Now, shifting gears for a second, I don't know about you, but it's in the genetic code of my family that we are, all of us on my dad's side of the family, we are loud laughers. I have been accused of yell laughing, which is hurtful, even though it's very true. (laughs) I do it. My sister does it. My dad does it. My great aunts do it. I remember like the first time my wife came to like a family event, she's like, oh my gosh. (laughs) Like everything's loud, especially the laughing. Like, oh, it's just normal for me. It's just a family trait, but here's the idea. It it just can't be hidden or ignored. It's just there. It's what is. And John goes on to say we all should have a kind of family trait in common now if we are in Christ. It can't be hidden. It's just what is. If we have passed from death to life, it will be seen clearly in proof in our new life. And there's always going to be proof and that proof will be how we love the brothers and sisters around us. Don't miss the gravity of that. We fight over orthodoxy. How do you do baptism? What do you think of communion? What do you think of this? Like We're, we're trying to find and fight over all of these things. And, and John's just drawing a line. Here's the thing that you fight over. Do you love each other? It has to be present. It can't be faked. No imitations. If you are in Christ, this is who you are. And whoever doesn't love his brother is still dead in their sin. The defining mark of all believers should be the way that we love other believers. Should be the way we love the world too, but definitely how we love each other. Here's a fear of mine right now, though. If there was a button that I could blow up all social media and hit it. Without reservation, I would smack that thing so fast. Why? Okay. If we're meant to be the light of the world, but we're so scared that we don't know what to do with our light, 
we kind of divide life into not even purposefully sacred and secular places. And then that means that in the, in the world, around other people who need to know Jesus, we're muting down who we are, which means that they cannot see how we love each other when we're around them. You following me? Right, we're too afraid, so we just kind of dial it back. So the world cannot see our love, which is meant to be the defining characteristic that shows them Jesus. They can't see it because we've toned back things so much, but what do they see? Instagram stories. That church sucks. I wish they didn't do that. I'm glad I'm not stupid like they are. That's what the world sees from us right now. They don't see us actually love, but they do see us throw haymakers at each other. What does that mean? They see no love. It's terrifying to think of the one thing that they're meant to see. What if they can never see it? Now, I'm not saying that there aren't churches and groups that have done horrific things, but here's what I wish wisdom would look like for us. If you can't go tell the person that you have the problem with, then just don't say anything. Because the people who are seeing it are the ones who are meant to see Jesus, and all they see is, oh, that guy hates his brother. Are you following me? I'm not saying that people shouldn't be called to account, but maybe we should ask, what does the world see when we do this? Do they see any defining characteristics of love? Do they see Jesus, or do they just see, oh, they hate each other like I hate those other people? There's nothing special there. John says it this way, when we do not love our brother, the same murderous heart that is Cain, that Cain had is in us. heart that does not love his brother. In that heart, there is no eternal life. There is no salvation. Granted, it's not saying if you have a bad day that you don't have salvation because you said something not great to your brother or sister. We're like, man, I've done that. But if you do not walk in love to your brother and sister, he's saying that there is no salvation there. Now, if the heart of Cain, the heart of the world, loves based on merit, remember, loves based on what you do for me or how you make me feel, then John contrasts that heart of love with who we are in Christ, saying, we know love as those who follow Jesus because we have been loved by Jesus. Jesus loved us and showed us his love through the action of dying on the cross. He laid down his life. Follow me for a moment. Jesus' love is not like Cain's, though, right? Because it's not merit-based. Did Jesus love us only after we loved him? No. He loved us when we did not love him at all. We were running in rebellion away from him. His love is not based upon what we've done or given him first. And, and, And his love for us is definitely not based about how we make him feel about himself. No, his love is grounded outside of that. It's grounded in the love of God. This is the identity of those who are saved. We love each other with a visible love, not based on how lovable the person is or how they make us feel. No, we love each other, fellow brothers and sisters, because God first loved us through Jesus, and we love our fellow brothers and sisters because God loves them, and it makes them worthy of love. Do you see the the, the radical otherworldly nature of this kind of love? Do you see it? It's a love that is confusing to the, to the world because it's literally foreign. A love not based on loveliness. 
A, a love not based on the person uh, who you're even pointing that love to. A love not only uh, not given when it's earned or, or worked for, but instead a love that is freely given. Why? Because God freely gave his love to us. John says it this way, we should lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. And what what hit me this week is we have been wired and we have kind of co-opted the world's way of love accidentally. I think maybe we begin to love the brothers and sisters, our fellow believers. We love each other when our fellow brothers and sisters lay down their life to earn our love. I'll love you when you lay down your life for me. I'll love you after you love me first. I'll love you when you do this. I'll love you when you do that. We are wired to demand others sacrifice to the altar of us to perform for us, to dance for us, to do for us, and we'll honor their sacrifice. Oh, thank you. With loving them in return. You perform for me, then I'll love you. You stop performing for me, I'll ghost you. John says, when we look inside the church, this should never be what we see. This is not the gospel. This is not the love that we've been given. This is not the love that we bask in. This is not the love that we are taught. See, we should see when we look inside the church, a family that lays its life down to love its members. A family that loves others just like the Father loved them. A family that that has been molded and taught to love in Jesus because it abides so fully in Jesus that that love naturally comes back out. See, it's not just our eternity that gets made new when we are in Christ. It's the love that we have for each other in the here and now. Through this action love that gets walked out and given back and forth to each other. This type of call from John, it demands that we ask some questions of ourselves. Do we love each other like this? Again, not because you better get better at it, because this is who you are if you're in Christ. Do we give each other love? Are we those who lavishly and extravagantly love each other in beautiful ways, or are we stingy with love by giving it only to the few who have earned it, who have paid for it? You sit here and think, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if I've given that kind of love. Like, I, I, didn't, even, I didn't even think of that as an option. I don't know that I've done that. Maybe I have loved people only when they don't annoy me and they prove themselves to me. That's kind of the feeling. Don't dismiss that and also don't wallow in shame. What's the play? It's, it's to pray, Lord, help me. I need your help today. I, I, I need you to create in me a heart that loves like you. I'm not feeling your love and I'm not giving your love. Holy Spirit, will you help me? Let me see the extravagant love of Jesus in a fresh way again with new eyes this morning. And then teach me not to hoard it, but to give it away. Help me. Something is going on where I'm not seeing and walking in your love. Would you please help me? This is who I am. This is who you've made me to be, and I'm not walking in it. Will you help me with that? Teach me to give as an offering back to the family the love that I've been given. Pour me up, God, and let me pour it back out. If you sit here and think, you know, I just don't know. Right? Not that, oh, I definitely haven't done it. It's just like, I just, it's just not clear to me. Like, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm doing. It's a pandemic. We've stayed away from people. My loving gauge is just broken. I don't know. Well, he kind of gives us a good gauge to go by here. I think people pigeonhole this text just to be generosity, and I don't think that's all that's meant here. It's a baseline. He says, okay, if you're not sure, where's a good place to start asking some questions? 
He says, if you have the, the world's goods and you see your brother in need, what do you do in that moment? You want to talk about love, you're confused, you don't know. When you see your brother in need, you have the world's goods, what do you do right then? John's approach is interesting though, right? Because normally we want to ask the question, if you're rich and you see someone in need. And that's problematic because we don't, don't we have the sliding scale? Me plus $100,000 equals rich? I'm not. If I had 100000 more, it might be, but I'm not, so it's not for me. He doesn't do that. He says, no, 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 no. The question is, do you have the world's goods? And, and us here this morning, when we wrestle with, do you have the world's goods, then we just have to ask this question, did you eat this morning? Did you eat any meal that you wanted to this week? If the answer is yes, you have the world's goods. Not everyone in the world gets to do that. So what that means is for all of us, the, the do you have the world's goods, all of us would go, yeah, we do. So that means it applies to all. So he says, hey, for you guys here, by this criteria, when you see your brother who begins to struggle and has need of something that you readily have in your hands, what do you do in that moment? Do you walk away from him or do you walk towards him in generosity? John's point is if we've been given freely the love of God and given resources by God and we see our brother in need of the resources that we have an abundance of and we just walk away, he's just asking a question, how can the love of God be there if you do that? Like, I don't, I don't understand how you would have a new heart if you do that. What John's trying to get us to do here is look at generosity for a baseline and move forward. But he's saying our gauge of love has to move past our emotive feelings and needs to walk out in our deeds. What do you do to the people around you? How do you treat them? How do you move towards someone in suffering? How do you meet a need? How do you walk towards them in the middle of difficulty? That is the defining characteristic of if you're walking in the love of Jesus or if you're not. Do you help and walk towards people or do you make people earn your love and walk away when they're hurting? What God's walking all of us out of, I think, is just in the wild during the pandemic, we all just batten the hatchet, the, the hatches. I, I just got to make it through. Now, now we're opening it back up and going, how do I care in love? How do I walk in love? Generosity by this language is therefore laying down your life. Right? It's the baseline of it. It can go further. But what is generosity? It's giving what you have earned to a person who did not earn it to show them God's love. What would the church be like, though? Here's one of the things about us. I think that we've done really good in portions of love at portions of time. We've been extremely generous at certain times. We've been extremely good at walking with people when they suffer at certain times. We've been extremely good at walking in loving community at certain times, but all the pieces maybe have not all walked together at the same time. What would it look like if they all moved together? I think that's part of even the vision that he's giving here, to walk in the kingdom of God as the people of God, fully walking in the love of God with each other. What a safe and beautiful space that would be. In that last kind of nugget is kind of the audacity of what John is showing us in the text. Here's kind of the aha when we look at this. We seem to be surprised when the world hates us, shocked by it even, when Jesus said all along that the world will 
reject you because of him. So we are shocked by what we shouldn't be shocked by. You catching that? But then we do not really expect to live in what we should expect as far as community of love. He says, don't be shocked when the world hates you. We're shocked by it. He says, hey, expect to walk in this kind of love. We're like, nah, that's probably not actually going to happen. Do you see what has happened? We have become, I think, so twisted and confused by the enemy. We're so far on our heels, so grasping for comfort, so attached to the idols of distraction, that the enemy has got us even backwards to how we see and what we expect from the world around us and each other. God's going, this is what's going to be for you. And we're going, I don't know about that. That's how backwards we are. And I, I believe that maybe the Holy Spirit would, would, would realign some of those things and go, no, no, no. Hey, man, I know it's going to hurt when you walk in the hatred of the world at times, but don't be surprised. Here's the beauty of this thing that you really can walk in. Let's straighten this out and let's walk towards it. See, we are shocked by what is normal. We don't think what is beautiful is actually attainable. My prayer over Lent and then this week would really be this, that we would believe the promises of God to a fuller level. We would see his love. We wouldn't be shocked by the hatred of the world. We're obviously not going to be gluttons for it. Be like, I'm so excited. But maybe we just wouldn't be so scared of it, though. That we would love the world by showing an unfiltered picture of Jesus. How will they ever come to see how great he is if we're always trying to to hide him from them? This looks like just simple things that somehow have gotten terrifying. Like I said before, just asking someone if you can pray for them. Asking someone if you can speak to them about Jesus. When you see someone through hardship walking towards them, sharing what Jesus has done for you to give them a picture of what they need and who Christ is. But we've gotten to this point where even the idea of praying at different times, like, oh no. The hope is that we would be unashamed to walk in the clarity of who Jesus has called us to be. We do not want to be purposely offensive. But we would want to be clear of who we follow and who we are so that some people might come to know Jesus through. The hope is that we would walk not so scared and then walk deeper into love and see what God would do through that. Laying down our lives when needed. Not making people earn our love, but freely giving it. Jesus says that it's possible. The hope is that we've just begun to ask him for it. Help us. Help us walk in it. We haven't walked in that. Help us. Help us see that. Take away my fear. Encourage me. Help me to love the people around me better so that you would be glorified, so that we would walk in your kingdom of light now and so the world may see you. God, you said it was possible. Would you let it be? Fearless lives, loving like Jesus, and the unashamed prayer, seeing revival come. Take away the fear and bring your spirit. Pray that you would feel not overburdened to work. Maybe your heart would just be stirred for a better reality and a beautiful picture that Jesus says, hey, it's just here for you. Will you stand with me? God, we thank you for this text. Lord, I pray that you stir vision in us. 
that you would stir a picture of your kingdom of light. Your church is not meant to look hostile like the world. Would you stir us with the love of Jesus so fully that we rewire to treat each other differently? Lord, I pray for that. I pray that you help us. I pray that the holds that the enemy has over us, that we are so terrified and so scared and so threatened by the world around us, I pray that you would make us fearless for you, that we would not try and aim for difficulty, but that we just wouldn't be so scared of it when it comes. Let us walk out the beauty of who you called us to be, Lord. We pray just clearly and boldly. Lord, would you save the lost? Let them see you through it. Let us walk in a community of beauty, but let other people come through you. We want to see the world walk in the beauty of who Jesus is. Lord, would you bring it? Bring revival to your church. Bring your spirit to this community. We pray that many that are far off would come. Do your work. Be glorified. Holy Spirit, we need you. We ask you to walk with us in your name and for the